This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Today we're going to hear from Marshall Rosenberg, the founder of the Center for Nonviolent Communication and one of my favorite teachers over the years, who passed away six years ago but left an indelible mark upon the world in the tradition of Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. In this presentation, from a series of workshops he led, he talks about peacemaking and how we can contribute to making life wonderful for each other, a message I think we could all use in these crazy times. What a wonderful gift that I was invited this evening. I'm deeply touched, but I'm also sad that there's apparently been a great misunderstanding because uh, I, when they called me up, I thought this was on peace breaking. <laughs> and so I came prepared tonight to tell you what I've learned about how to break peace and how to make life miserable for yourself. And I felt good about that, because I'm good at that, you see. Peacemaking, I'm not so good at, but peace-breaking. So, will you give me permission to go against your theme and teach you how to make life miserable tonight? <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, I'll use this precious time with you to share some things that I've learned about how to make life miserable. How to break peace between yourself and others. Let me show you how to do it. First, it would help if I got some participation in the audience. I would like somebody to insult me. Would somebody please insult me? You're a fat boy. <laughs> now, if somebody says something that implies there's something wrong with you as this idiot, uh, as this man, <laughs> as this gentleman did, if you want to break peace and make life miserable for yourself, let me suggest 
this technology. Jackal ears. So that if somebody expresses something like that, these ears can go on one of two ways. If somebody says, you know, you're too fat, you can put them on facing inward. And if you want to break peace and make life miserable for yourself, do that. Because then what you hear in what the other person says, is there something wrong with you? You hear a criticism and you believe it. Oh my gosh, oh how terrible these feel, you know. Because now when he says that, I think maybe I am too fat. What's wrong with me for being so fat? And I feel like PPPPT, which is clinical terminology for pretty poor protoplasm poorly put together. <laughs> so if you want to break peace, do that. When somebody is in pain and says something like that to you, hear a criticism and believe it. Now, there's another possibility. Put these ears on the other way. When you have them on this way, you think of what is wrong with the other person for saying what they do. If you had a brain, it would be lonesome, idiot. Now, some of us are very gifted with these ears. We're earbidextrous. Somebody can make a statement like that, and we can put them on this way and take it personally and feel, you know, terribly guilty, shamed, depressed. We can flip them on the other way and be angry. So we go through our life being angry, guilty, depressed, angry, guilty, depressed, angry. <laughs> These ears are distributed by the makers of Prozac. These ears have been necessary for us to wear for the last 8,000 years. We've been educated to wear them because we've been living under domination structures. And domination structures require us to be educated to think of what other people think about us. Do they think I'm normal, abnormal, appropriate, inappropriate? Because how you were judged in the culture I was educated in depends on whether you get rewarded or punished, you see. We've had a concept of spirituality that the highest energy sits up on a mountaintop with a big computer and judges every action that every people take. And then at their death, they run out a tabulation and if they get the right grades, they go to heaven. If they fail, they go to Detroit. <laughs> no, uh, hell, hell. I. I grew up in Detroit, and I get those two places mixed up. <laughs> so if you want to break peace and make life miserable, think of what's wrong with other people when they behave in a way you don't like. Use words that other people hear as criticism, analysis. You like to make life even more miserable? Think of what's wrong with you. But if you really like to be depressed, think of what other people think about you. <laughs> you want to break even more peace and get even more miserable? Compare yourself to others. If you don't know how to do that, there's a good book I recommend. It's called 
How to Make Life Miserable by Dan Greenberg. A real book. It's good, too, and it produces. For example, it shows you how to compare yourself to other people. It has an exercise, for example, it shows a picture by contemporary standards of a very attractive man and a very attractive woman. And all of their measurements are on this picture. And the exercise is this. Take your measurements, <laughs> compare them to these beautiful people, and think about the difference. It, this really works, you know. You can be really happy and you do that comparative exercise and you think you're about as miserable as you can get until you turn the page. And then he said, this was just a warm-up because we all know that beauty isn't that important. We all know that what's important is achievement, what you've achieved at your stage in life. So, he says, I have prepared an exercise so you can compare what you've achieved in your life with what other people have achieved. And to do this, he claims to have picked people at random from the New York City phone book <laughs> to call them up and ask what they've achieved in their life so you can compare yourself to them. And I hear I'm not sure I trust the author too much. First person he claims to have called was Mozart. And he lists what Mozart had accomplished by age eight. How, how many pieces of music he had already written, some of which have lasted as classics, and how many languages he knew, etc., etc. So the exercise is list what you've achieved in your life. Compare it with what Mozart did by age eight, and think about the difference. So yes, so now, if you want to not make peace, but break peace. I've already given you some advice. Hear what other people think about you. Think about others in terms of rightness and wrongness. Use language that criticizes, blames, condemns, you see. I was taught to wear these ears this way. I'm very good at judging what's wrong with people, because I grew up under a culture that uses retributive justice. Retributive justice is all based on judging and on the basis of the judgment determine who deserves reward and who deserves to be punished. If you want to contribute to peace breaking on the planet, support that quality of justice. Use punishment. For example, if you want to create a violent world, if your child does something you don't like, punish. Support a government that punishes criminals. See, this concept of justice says that we're all evil and we have to be governed, therefore, by those people who are the most holy, the most superior. And these people have a right to judge. And on the basis of their judgment, they reward and punish. Think that way and you support violence on our planet. Use punishment if you want to make a worse world. Punish children. Support governments that punish criminals. Now, you'll never use punishment. You never would use punishment if you ask yourself two questions. Unfortunately, we don't ask ourselves these questions. What are the two questions that I think are very critical? If somebody's behaving in a way you don't like, ask yourself this question. What would I like this person to do differently? Now, 
if you ask only that question, it can trick you into thinking punishment sometimes works. Because sometimes you can probably think of when you have been able to influence people to do what you want through the use of punishment or the threat of punishment. But ask yourself a second question and you will see that punishment never works. What is this important second question? What would you like the other person's reasons to be for behaving as you would like them to behave? If you ask that question, I'm confident you will see that punishment never works. But see, we've been taught that people are basically evil and selfish, and so therefore the corrective process, if you want to make peace, you have to make them penitent. Penitent, you see. And how do you do that? You use the language of jackal. That's where I got these ears. See, I use the word jackal as a symbol for language that contributes to violence on our planet. So let me show you how jackal works. I'm sure you've banned this language, but just in case you should ever hear somebody who speaks jackal, uh, you need to be prepared for it. See, where I grew up in Detroit, here's how jackal works. If you're a parent, and you have a child, you see, that doesn't do what you like. If you speak jackal and you are a peace breaker and you want to make sure that you have violence on the planet, you even use violence with your children. So if this child does something I don't like, watch how you correct the child. Now, if you're afraid of violence, don't watch this. <laughs> Say you're sorry! I'm sorry. No, you're not really sorry. I can see you're not really sorry. See, this whole game depends on judging whether the person has suffered enough for their sin. It's called penitence. Are they sufficiently penitent to be forgiven, you see? So you, you have to make... And I'm a parent. I don't think so. I think this crime deserves more suffering. So I say, you're not really sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now I'm judging, you see, has the child suffered enough? It's just like arguing whether how many months in prison does a person deserve, you see, as though that's going to solve something. Okay, I forgive you, you see. What a violent game. So if you like peace-breaking, use punishment, you see. Use punishment. Blame people when they do what you don't like. I'm good at this blame game. I learned peace breaking. That's why when you invited me here and I thought you wanted me to talk about peace breaking, I felt great. Finally, I'm asked to speak about something I know how to do. For example, uh, where I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, if somebody's driving in a way you don't like, you see, and you want to use the kind of justice that we use in our society, you put these ears on and you judge them, you see, and you make them penitent. Now, how do you do that? You roll down the window, and you say something like this, IDIOT! <laughs> if they're driving in a way you don't like, you have to educate people by making them penitent, you see. So you have to tell them what's wrong with them. It never worked for me. No matter how many times I told people what idiots they were for driving as they did, they never said, I'm sorry. <laughs> So I thought maybe it had something to do with the particular slang I learned in Detroit. So to get some, some culture, I went to the university and got a doctor's degree in professional jackal. 
I think, as I recall, it's been a few years now, I think it was called Clinical Psychology. <laughs> so now I'm not so primitive as to, you know, use the language I used to use. Now if somebody's driving in a way I don't like, I roll down the window. Psychopath! <laughs> so if you're interested in peace-breaking, and you want to contribute to violence on the planet, then put these ears on and think of what is wrong with people. Use a language of criticism, blame, when people do what you don't like. But you want to be even more violent? Not only use punishment, use rewards. Use rewards to try to manipulate people to get to do what you want. And you want to be really cruel? Use praise and compliments as rewards to get people to do what you want. Not only use judgments that tell people what's wrong with them when they do what you don't like. Use compliments to get them to do what you do like. You see. Teachers and parents that I work with tell me they've gone to courses that teach them that you need to reward people by giving them praise and compliments. Research shows that if you do, students work harder. Workers work harder if they're given praise and compliments daily. When I work with people who say that, I say, take another look at the research. You'll see that it only works for a short time until people see the praise and the compliments are used as manipulations. And then you'll see it no longer works. But worse than that, it destroys the beauty of sincere gratitude when we use rewards, and especially to take something as beautiful as sincere gratitude and turn it into a manipulation by expressing it as praise and compliments. So, those are some of the lessons I give you this evening on peace-breaking. Criticize, blame, use punishment, use rewards, but if you really want to break peace on the planet and make life miserable for yourself, use Amtssprache. Amtssprache. That's a German phrase. I borrow it from the Nazi war criminal Adolf Eichmann. At his trial for war crimes in Jerusalem, Eichmann was asked, was it difficult for you to send tens of thousands of people off to their death? Eichmann answered very honestly. He said, to tell you the truth, it was easy. Our language made it easy. Boy, that shocked his interviewer, and his interviewer said, What language? Eichmann said, My fellow Nazi officers and I, we had our own name for our language. We called it Amtssprache. Amt in German means office. Sprache means language. So it means bureaucratic language. It's a language in which you deny responsibility for your actions, in which you imply that you have no choice but to do what you're doing. Eichmann was asked for some examples of Amtssprache. He says, if you're asked why you sent these thousands of people off, you say, I had to. I hope you've banned those words. If you haven't, please do. What could be more violent than a language that implies that we have no choice? Should, there's another one. Ought, must, can't. Amtssprache. Why do you have to? Superior's orders. Company policy. It's the law. 
dangerous, dangerous, dangerous language. So if you like peace breaking, speak Amtsprache. Use a language in which you imply you have no choice. I was saying that in St. Louis, Missouri one time to a group of parents and teachers, and boy, did a mother get angry at me, as many people do around the world when I suggest that Amtsprache is a very dangerous language. And if you want to break peace, deny responsibility for your actions. And this mother got very upset with me. And she spoke some perfect Amtsprache to me. She said, but there are some things you have to do whether you like to do it or not. And it's our job as parents and teachers to teach our children that they have to do some things whether they like to do it or not. I said, could you give me an example of what's one of these things that you have no choice about? Oh, there's so many. Okay, I'll give you one right now. I hate to cook. I hate it with a passion. But I have cooked every day for 20 years, even when I've been sick as a dog. Because there just are some things you have to do. I told her I was very sad to hear that, and I really was. I'm sad to hear anybody do anything one time out of that kind of energy, let alone every day of their life. So I said I was hoping I could teach her some nonviolent communication, because I really believe that that would open up some happier possibilities. I'm pleased to announce she was a rapid, rapid student. She went home that very evening and announced to her family she no longer wanted to cook. I got some feedback from her family. <laughs> the feedback took the form of two of her sons came to an evening workshop like this uh, two weeks later. Uh, they came up ahead of time to talk to me and introduce themselves. And I said, hey, am I glad you guys came up. I'm so curious what's happening in your house. Your mother's been calling me about every other day, telling me about the major change she's made in her life since the workshop. And I'm always wondering what happens to a family when one man, family member comes home a little weird. Like, what was it like that first night when she came home and announced that she no longer wanted to cook? The oldest son, John, said to me, Marshall, I said to myself, thank God. I said, how did you come to that? He said, I said to myself, now maybe she won't complain at every meal. So if you want to make life miserable for yourself and break peace within yourself, between yourself and family members, tell people what they have to do. Use the word should. That's the best advice I can give you on how to destroy peace in yourself and others. But of course I'm kidding, you know that. I know that you really wanted me to come tonight not to tell you how to break peace, you wanted me to show you how to make peace, so let me get on to that. That's what nonviolent communication is. But nonviolent communication requires some technology, which I'm going to show you how to use this evening. If you want to make peace, this is the best technology I can suggest. Giraffe ears. This is wonderful technology. Because with this technology, no matter what people say to you, no matter how they speak, you can hear no criticism, you can hear no blame, you can't hear the word no, you can't hear silence. Because with these ears on, 
the other person cannot not communicate a language of life. With these ears you connect with what's alive in people, no matter how they speak. You see? Let me show you what I mean. Those of you who have read my book, or those of you who will read it, you'll see in there, I was in a refugee camp in the Middle East, and I was being introduced by my interpreter, and while my interpreter announced that I was from the United States, I got a free diagnosis. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? A free diagnosis. You go to a psychiatrist to find out what's wrong with you, it'll cost you a lot of money. <laughs> right away, as soon as he heard that I was from the United States, I got a free diagnosis. Here's what he said. Murderer! Some other people in the group shared similar diagnoses of me. Another one said, child killer! Another one said, assassin! Boy, was I glad I had my giraffe ears on. Was I glad I had my giraffe ears on, because see, at the moment these ears go on, you can hear no criticism. You can hear no blame. What you do is you go directly for the truth. And this is all you can see. Isn't that wonderful technology? Isn't that wonderful? You see, with these ears on, all you can connect in is what's alive in people. Yes, we've been programmed for 8,000 years in this language of violence in a language that teaches us to judge one another, right, wrong, good, bad, normal, abnormal, freedom fighter, terrorist, to turn people into objects, into things that justify punishment, reward. Yeah, we've been taught that for a long time, but with these ears we see the truth, that all criticism is a tragic expression of an unmet need, you see. We go into the heart, which is why I call it nonviolent communication giraffe language because giraffes have the largest heart of any land animal so what better symbol for a language of life a language of the heart than giraffe language so with giraffe ears you can hear no criticism you go here you see what's in here so when he said murderer what did I say back I try to hear what he's feeling what would you guess he's feeling See, some say hurt, angry. The technology on these ears is not such that we can always guess right. But even if we are sincerely trying to connect with feelings, even if we guess wrong, it demonstrates to this person we care what's alive in them. So I guessed furious. He just looked as angry as a person could be. And we always connect feelings in nonviolent communication with the cause of feelings. The cause of feelings is our needs. We never blame other people for our feelings. We never say, you make me angry, that makes me angry. We know that other people can't make us feel anything. We connect our feelings to our needs. We know that when we're feeling pleasureful feelings, our needs are being fulfilled. When we feel painful feelings, our needs are not being met. It was pretty clear his needs were not being met. So I tried to guess both what he was feeling and what he was needing. So I said, sir, are you feeling furious? Is your need for support not being met by my government? You're damn right. We don't have housing. We don't have sewers. Why are you sending your weapons? So, sir, if I'm hearing what's going on in you, 
It's very painful when you have such basic needs as housing and sewage that aren't being met and you see the weapons being sent. You're damn right. Do you know what it's like to live under these conditions? So, sir, you're really wanting some understanding of how painful this is. See, isn't that wonderful technology? Twenty minutes later, this guy invites me to a Ramadan dinner at his house. We now have a nonviolent communication school in that refugee camp which incidentally is labeled as one of the most extremist camps in the area. All the parents, all the teachers, all the students learn this peacemaking language, this language of life, of how to express what's alive in you, what you feel, what you need, not what you think is wrong with others. I'm Tony Epstein. We're listening to Marshall Rosenberg, founder of Nonviolent Communication, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. But being aware that the vast majority of the people on the planet, unfortunately, have been educated for 8,000 years in this language of violence, we have to know how to hear the human being behind the language. And that's why this technology is very central to our process. We also want to get the next generation of students to know how to wear these ears. One of my happiest days as a parent it was when my oldest son, Rick, came back from his first day in a jackal school. He was 12. I had sent my children to a school I had helped create for the first six years of their schooling. A school in which the teachers are not controllers. They are partners with the students. In which the students don't compete with each other. They work interdependently. No punishments, no rewards. Recent research on 60 of our schools in Israel show a radical decrease in measures of violence from before we started the schools until after. By showing the teachers, the students, the parents a language of life, how to live in harmony with needs, not with the superior knows what's right. So my son Rick, when he had just gone to his first day in a jackal school, and I was curious what that was like for him, so when he came home, I said, hey, Rick, how was the new school? He said, it's okay, Dad, but boy, some of those teachers. I said, what happened? Dad, I was only halfway through the door of the school. Some man teacher comes running up to me and says, my, my, look at the little girl. My son had long hair, you see. Isn't that wonderful educational technology? Look at this. <laughs> Seriously, look at this. My son is halfway through the door, and he's getting four of the most important messages you can get in a jackal school. Lesson one, there's a right way to do things and a wrong way to do it. For example, in this case, a right way for boys to wear their hair and a wrong way. Lesson number two, who knows what's right? The authorities, the teachers. Lesson three, you use guilt, shame, punishment, to influence. Lesson four, it's a shame to be a girl. Isn't that efficient technology? Just, he's halfway through the door. I said to him, hey, how did you handle that? I remember what you said, Dad, that when you're in that kind of structure, never give them the power to make you submit or rebel. See, in our giraffe schools, if there's one thing we would like to teach students, if that's no other message, 
Be enough connected to your own spirituality so you don't let the structures determine how you behave. We've got to be conscious, as Walter Wink, the theologian, says. Unfortunately, our present structures, governmental, school, work, have their own spirituality. And unfortunately, it's a spirituality that makes violence enjoyable and justifiable. So certainly in our giraffe schools, we want the students to learn what I was thrilled that my son had learned, that no matter what the structure, be enough in touch with yourself that you don't ever let them make you submit or rebel. So I said to him, hey man, you couldn't have made my life happier right now if you could remember to do that under those conditions. What did you do then? I just did what you said, Dad, you know, put on giraffe ears. I just tried to hear his feelings and needs. I said, wow, man, you did that? What did you hear? Pretty obvious, Dad. I guessed he was irritated, wanted me to cut my hair. Wow, I'm glad you could try to see his humanness no matter how he communicated. How did that leave you feeling? Dad, I felt sad for the man. He was bald and seemed to have a thing about hair. <laughs> See what I was teaching my son there, we teach kids in school how to do that. Because if they're going to be in jackal schools, unfortunately most of them are, we at least want to teach these students how to put on those giraffe ears so that you don't make a difficult situation worse. So I was in Bainbridge Island, Washington, working with some 11-year-olds, teaching them how to wear giraffe ears. And I said to these students, you know, if you wear these ears, no matter how other people communicate, you will hear them singing a beautiful song. They were a bit skeptical. One of the students said to me, a beautiful song? Yesterday I said to a teacher, you know, I didn't understand that, would you explain it again? And she said, don't you listen, I've explained it twice already. How do you hear a beautiful song? I said, I'm going to show you, because if you have these ears on, you always hear a beautiful song. Another student was also skeptical. How do you hear a beautiful song when your father says, you're the most selfish child in the family? I said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you. Because if you put giraffe ears on, and you hear what the other person is feeling and needing, you will always hear them singing this song. See me beautiful, Look for the best in me That's what I really am All I wanna be It may take some time It may be hard to find But see me beautiful See me beautiful each and every day Could you take a chance Could you find a way To see me shining through In everything I do And see me beautiful 
The next month I uh, went back to that school. The plan was I was first going to teach the students nonviolent communication, and then the next month I was to go back and teach the teachers what I had taught the students. So I was having coffee with one of the teachers before uh, the day started, and she said to me, Are you aware of what monsters you created when you were here last month? I said, Now what did I do? She said, now every time we scream at the students, they put their arms around one another and go, See me beautiful. <laughs> true story, true story. So yes, this is very powerful technology. To hear the, the humanness in the other person, no matter how they speak. Now, Sometimes when I'm teaching people how to do this, it takes a while for them not to get this as looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. No, it's not that at all. With these ears, we see the truth. But I hadn't made this clear yet when I was working with the Israeli police. <laughs> One of the policemen said, Oh, I understand, Marshal. If somebody spits on me, I'm supposed to tell myself it's raining out. No, I said, because it isn't raining out. And with these ears, we hear the truth. The truth is, human beings don't do anything except in the service of needs. Everything we do is in the service of needs. That's why a central part of nonviolent communication is to learn how to articulate our own needs. To be aware of what I've already told you, that all criticism is a tragic expression of our needs. So we show people how to be very honest, but an honesty of life, an honesty of what's alive, without ever using any words that criticize, blame, condemn. See, A language of feelings, but to make sure when you do express feelings, you don't do it to induce guilt. Because guilt induction is a very violent game. See? Now, but if, if some of you haven't learned how to use guilt yet, let me show you how to do it. I'm good at it. Okay, I'll show you how to use guilt. Let's say a child of mine is behaving in a way I don't like. And I would like to use guilt. Okay, first step in using guilt. This will be hard for many of you, but it's very easy for me. Because you have to learn how to look pathetic. So place yourself where the child can see you and look pathetic. <laughs> Some things I do well, yes. The child sees you, right? Yeah. What's the matter, Dad? Nothing. <laughs> Come on, Dad, what's the matter? Now here comes the violent act. Blame other people for your feelings if you want to be violent. It hurts me when you don't clean up your room. <laughs> That's how you use guilt, you see. Feelings are a very important part of nonviolent communication, but we don't use them that way. We don't blame other people for our feelings. We connect our feelings to our needs. We share what's alive in us. And then when we share what's alive in us, we end with a clear request. We tell the other person what we would like them to do that would better meet our needs. And we want to make sure that the other person trusts 
that when we do say what we want, that they trust that it is a request and not a demand, you see. So what is the difference between a request and a demand? Once I said to my youngest son, would you please hang your coat up in the closet, okay? Was that a request or a demand? Both? I'll tell you his response. Would you please hang your coat up in the closet? Who was your slave before I was born? He heard it as a demand, obviously. You see. Now, why did he hear it as a demand? Because, unfortunately, for the first couple of years of his life, I only knew jackal parenting. I thought it was my job, when I'm in the role of parent, or teacher, or manager, to make people behave. Can you imagine anything more stupid than that? <laughs> to think you can make another person behave? My children taught me, though, very young, I couldn't make them do anything. Please put your toys back in the toy box. It's time for dinner. No. <laughs> Come on now. Did you hear Daddy? Daddy said, put your toys back in the toy box. No. I couldn't make them do anything. All I could do is make them wish they had. And then they taught me another very important lesson, that any time I would make them wish they had, they would make me wish I hadn't made them wish they had. <laughs> they taught me a, a lesson that was later confirmed by Gandhi, that violence creates violence. So it was very helpful for me to learn that you can't make people do anything, you see. See, my youngest son, he was really a good teacher to me about that I hadn't been aware of how I was making demands because I had this thinking that as a parent I know what's right and you have to do it. But he really got to me. He really educated me. How did he do that? First of all, I noticed that when it snowed, he would run down to the street corner with a shovel and shovel this woman's walk. The long walk she had back to her garage because she was handicapped. She couldn't walk, but she could drive. So as soon as it snowed, he'd run down there, shovel the walk. He never told her who did it, never asked her for money. At our house, we had a tiny little walkway. <laughs> you got it, you got it. I... Twice a week, we had the garbage war at the Rosenberg house. Because I had assigned the children tasks to do that they should do because if we're going to be members of a family, we all have to contribute. So twice a week we had the garbage war. It started with my simply mentioning his name. Brett! <laughs> What's so funny? That's his name. Now, how did he accelerate the war? He's in the next room, right? He pretends he didn't hear me. <laughs> so what do I do? Of course, I scream so loud he can't pretend. Bleh! What? The garbage hasn't been taken out. You're very perceptive, Dad. <laughs> Get it out. I'll do it later. You said that last time and didn't do it. 
doesn't mean I won't do it this time. Can you imagine using so much energy to get the garbage out? When we have a world in which millions of people are starving, the violence, all of my energy is being drained getting the garbage out. But then I started to learn how to peace make rather than peace break. I began to be aware of how cruel the label child is when it's just a perpetuation of the domination system in which people with titles claim to know what other people have to do and impose this on them through the use of punishment and reward. So I started to see this. And so I asked him one night, hey, how can we break out of this, man? How can we break out of this? You know, I realized I've been thinking that I know what's right and imposing it. How can we break out of it? He came up with a great solution. He said, how about this, Dad? How about if it sounds like a demand, I ask you, is that a request or a demand? Hey, I like that. Let's try it. Let's see if we can break out of this. The next morning before he went to school, we had three chances to practice. <laughs> I asked him to do three things that any decent child would do for such a wonderful father. <laughs> which was my thinking, you see, which makes it a have to, a should. But this kid is a great crap detector. Each of the three times, he said, Dad, is that a request or a demand? I said, thank you, thank you, that helps. It was a demand, now it's a request. Each time he did it. So after talking to him about this, and I really got straight just how dangerous it is to ever think you know what another person should do or have to do, and to put it to them in the form of a demand. You see, in giraffe, we never want anybody to do anything unless they can do it with the joy of a little child feeding a hungry duck. We only want people to do as we request if they see how it will enrich life and it enriches their life to do it. We never want anybody to do anything out of fear of punishment, criticism. We don't want people to do anything to buy love only for what I think is natural for we human beings. I think we like more than anything else to contribute to life. But for us to enjoy doing that, it has to be that we hear a request, not a demand. We're not doing it to escape blame, punishment, criticism. So he taught me that lesson, and I was sitting there thinking about it afterwards, about how I had been conditioned to think that because I have a title, parent, teacher, or something else, that I know what's right, and I impose it on people. So this song came to me. So since I stole some of the lines from what he told me, I call it Song from Brett. Incidentally, he lives here in town. He's a professor of Spanish over at the university. If I clearly understand You intend no demand I'll usually respond When you call But if you come across Like a high mighty boss You'll feel like you ran into a wall and when you remind me so piously about all of those things that you've done for me, you'd better get ready. Here comes another bout. Then you can shout, you can spit, moan and groan and throw a fit. I still won't take 
the garbage out. <laughs> now, even if you should change your style, it's going to take me a little while before I can forgive and forget. Because it seemed to me that you didn't see me as human too. Until all your standards were met. Okay, so that's how we express what's alive in us when we are trying to peace make rather than peace break. We share what's alive in us: our feelings, our needs, our requests. No criticism, no demands. No matter what people say to us, we put on the giraffe ears and hear what's alive in them. Because when that connection is there, when both parties can just see what's alive in each other, nobody feels any criticism or demand. Everybody's needs can get met through compassionate giving. We have all the resources on the planet to meet people's needs. We don't have to have all the thousands starving every day. But we have the jackal language, you see. It doesn't help us to connect in a way in which everybody's needs can get met. So a very important part of nonviolent communication then is when our needs aren't getting met to know how to create this connection that will allow everybody's needs to get met through compassionate giving. But in order to maintain this consciousness in a world where, unfortunately, the vast majority of people are trained to think and communicate and act in a different way, we need to have fuel. We need to have the fuel that it takes to keep this consciousness. So, what fuel is it that we need? Giraffe juice. How do we get this fuel of giraffe juice into our system? This is the fuel that is needed for peacemaking. Giraffe juice. Now don't worry, it's, it's a homeopathic fuel. <laughs> we get it when we have a certain intention to contribute to life. We do something out of the motive of making somebody's life more wonderful. Not giving in out of guilt, shame, duty, obligation, have to, no, no out of the joy that comes when we intentionally do something to enrich life. And when we get confirmation that our intention was fulfilled, we see how another person's life has been enriched by our actions. Then we get the giraffe juice. But that gets distorted in our culture by thinking that we need to use praise and compliments rather than sincere gratitude. So let's make clear, if we're interested in peacemaking, how to express gratitude and not mix it up with praise and compliments, you see. So what makes the difference between the violence of praise and compliments and the power of sincere gratitude? The intention is very important. As I say, the intention in praise and compliments is to reward. Rewards are a violent game. If you don't see why, read the book, Punished by Rewards, 
by Elfie Kohn, K-O-H-N. Punished by rewards. No more rewards, especially praise and compliments. But we do want to express sincere gratitude because that's where people get the giraffe juice, when they really get sincere gratitude, not a compliment. So, what do we express when we express a sincere gratitude? First, our motive is very important. Our only motive is to celebrate. Somebody has done something that has enriched our life. We want to celebrate that. And what information do we need to convey to the other person for that celebration to occur? Three things. We've got to make clear what they did, how we feel about it, and what need of ours was met. That's the basic language of nonviolent communication. To make clear observations, express our feelings and our needs. I didn't make this very clear with, to a group of teachers I was working with in Switzerland. Because after the workshop that I did, trying to show them how to express sincere gratitude, one of the teachers came running up to me and jackaled the heck out of me. Here's what she said. She comes running up to me. You're brilliant! I said, it doesn't help. She said, huh? What do you mean? I said, I have been called a lot of names in my life. Some positive and some far from positive. And I can never recall learning anything of value by somebody telling me what I am. I don't think anybody does. But I can see from the gleam in your eye you want to express a gratitude. Yes! And I want to receive it. But telling me what I am doesn't give me the information I need to get the giraffe juice in my system. Well, what do you need to hear? Remember what I said in the workshop, those three things I need first. What did I do that made life more wonderful for you? Oh, uh, uh, you're so intelligent. <laughs> doesn't help. Doesn't help. Oh, I got you. I got you. She opens up her notebook and shows me two things I had said that she had written down. You said these two things. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Already I'm starting to get some giraffe juice in my system just to see that somehow my saying those two things enrich this person's life. But now when I can hear the other two things, I'll get a real shot of giraffe juice. The second thing I'd like to hear is, how do you feel right now as a result of what I said? Hopeful and relieved. And now what need of yours was met? Marshall, I got this 18-year-old son. Whenever we have an argument, it goes forever because we don't know how to connect. And it just is horrible that every little conflict just tears us apart. These two things you said meet my need for some concrete direction for how to connect with him. Now put yourself in my shoes. Do you want to be brilliant or do you want to see how your actions have enriched somebody's life? Yeah. But now I'm going to end tonight on uh, the hardest part of nonviolent communication for most people. How to receive gratitude. First, I'll demonstrate how jackal-speaking people receive a gratitude. If you want to terrorize somebody who speaks jackal, give them some sincere gratitude. Watch what happens. You know, when you offered me the ride last night, I, I still feel very grateful and touched about that because I had a real need to get home to my family quicker. Oh, is nothing. 
sincere gratitude terrorizes jackals. <laughs> so I've asked a lot of jackal-speaking people, how come you get so scared to hear a sincere gratitude? Here's what some of them say. Well, I don't know that I deserve it. See, that's part of that violent system of justice, that you have to deserve punishment or deserve rewards. So you can't, you don't believe there's such a thing as unconditional caring, love. It is not a matter of deserve. You enrich my life. I don't know whether you deserve it or not. You enrich my life. But when you got that deserve in your head, you can't enjoy it. But other jackals have been taught jackal humility. What's wrong with being humble? <laughs> if I take in the gratitude, that implies that I might be something worthwhile. What's wrong with being humble? I know how to cure these jackals. I just tell them something gold to my ear. The Israeli Prime Minister once told to one of her humble politicians. She said, don't be so humble, you're not that great. <laughs> but I think the most powerful explanation I've ever seen of why jackals have such a rough time receiving gratitude is it's our light, not our darkness, that scares us the most. Thank you very much. That was Marshall Rosenberg, most well-known for his work on nonviolent communication. This is from a recording which came out after he passed away in February of 2015, along with a number of other fabulous recordings that were hitherto unavailable to the public. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>